0: Michael, are you celebrating anything special today?
1: Only another Saturday here with you and our listeners.
0: That sounds like a very fine reason to enjoy the latest release from Veuve Clicquot. Its new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, is delicious, and it looks as good as it tastes, thanks to the iconic Japanese artist Yayoi Kusama, who created original artwork for the bottle.
1: Crusama's vibrant and cheerful design is an homage to the Grand Dame of Champagne, Madame Clicot, who took over the production of Maison Clicot champagne back in eighteen oh five after her husband died.
0: It's a beautiful way to celebrate any and every occasion. La Grande Dame 2012, the newest vintage from Vave Clicot. Happy Saturday. It is May 8th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail.
1: I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, I have something important to say to you.
0: I'm nervous. What is it?
1: Happy Mother's Day.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. I hope everyone is taking an extra special two-day celebration. We deserve it.
1: Exactly. You know, I don't even know your mother's name.
0: Kathy. She's the best. Love you, Mom.
1: Kathy, you're the best. Happy Mother's Day. And Mom, Barbara, happy Mother's Day.
0: Barbara! Michael, what did you do for your mother for Mother's Day? Tell us.
1: I sent her a card, and I'm going to be seeing her, in fact.
0: This is your first time seeing your mother since pre-pandemic.
1: 17 months, but who's counting?
0: Are you nervous?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a tough audience.
0: She's she Barbara's tough. She could wipe the court with you in tennis. She can mm-hmm. bake you out of banana bread any day of the week. She's probably going to have some comments on the fact that you've completely let yourself go by only wearing a tie six of the seven days a week during COVID. Yes,
1: dear. See, you two have been a collision. <laughs> I can tell.
0: Indeed. Hey, great minds, Michael. Great minds.
1: Exactly. Watch out, Charlie.
0: <laughs> Watch out. There is nothing I'd rather do than spend this beautiful Saturday here with you, our listeners, talking about all of the things we love in this week's edition of Airmail. Michael, we have to talk about... What else? Our favorite topic, the indoor dining situation in New York City. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go. Okay. So as you know, I believe in supporting the restaurants. So I've been out and about a fair amount. I went to Balthazar on Wednesday night. Michael, it felt like New Year's Eve in the city. Could you believe, like every single restaurant had people spilling out of the doors, revelers in the streets. Balthazar was packed body to body with these plastic partitions that like, let's just be clear, I don't really know how much good they were doing. I'm not complaining about this. It was really fun to see, but I'm just telling you, I will probably be one of those doubly vaccinated people that ends up getting COVID. That's just going to be my trajectory here.
1: Yeah, I think we were both out on the same night. I happened to be at Pestis with friends. And I think when we, it was, it felt like you were in one of the, it was like I was in Paris or something and they just won the World Cup. It was like everyone was out. On the, of course, it was like one of those nights when it was 80 degrees in the city. And I think everyone was just ready to sort of go out and, and uh, be vaccinated and intoxicated.
0: Okay. I'm going to ask you to pick favorites, Balthazar or Pastis.
1: Oh, God, that's impossible. Pastis was my favorite place when I was a bachelor. Balthazar was my favorite place when I started dating Brooke. So they both have a sort of, um, you know, special place. I miss the old Pastis. It was like such a great place, obviously.
0: I miss the old Pastis too. I love the new one, but the old one was truly special. Yeah, yeah. Michael, like there's also another strange thing happening. Have you noticed how everyone is bringing their looks they are serving up looks, as the children say. The fashion on the streets of New York is like nothing I've ever seen. It's like every day is fashion week. I kept, I keep expecting to see the sartorialists shooting pictures of people walking around and going into restaurants. It's like a hot pant here, a spangled crop top there. And people are not wearing sweatpants anymore. That is for sure.
1: Oh, yeah, of course. It's like all this pent up. You know, and you started to see this, I, I was saying this like last sort of summer going into fall. I remember walking around the neighborhood and on Friday, Saturday nights, you'd see, you know, girls, young women, 20s, 30s, meeting for dinner in the neighborhood, a table of four or six on a Thursday night, Friday night. And they were all dressed, high heels, dresses, the whole thing, of course. And as Brooke said... Well, yeah, you've been sitting at home all day. You've got a closet full of great clothes you're not wearing. What else are you going to do but bring it? And now I think as the warm weather's here and everyone's feeling even better... And you're even seeing this like the rise in retail sales. And I say fashion's coming back. So
0: my dearest oldest friend came and visited me this week from Chicago. And so she and I took an afternoon uh, off hooky from the home office, which basically, let's face it, is what the home office is for. And we went down to Soho and went shopping. And Michael, let me tell you, it was a spectacle. OK, I was trying on some wild clothes. And first of all, it feels like such a luxury to walk into a store and actually try things on and engage with the salesperson versus is just shopping online and returning 98% of what I buy. So anyway, I was in this boutique downtown, I will spare the designer's name, but I was trying on a pair of burgundy palazzo pants which mm, probably not the best look for me. And the sales associate said, "I love these on you. You need to get these. They're absolutely necessary." And I said, "I mean, they're, you know, they're cool. It's a look, but let's be clear, like I just don't think they look very good." And she said this line that I will never forget, and in fact, I want to print it on a t-shirt. She said, it's not about looking good. It's about looking interesting. So there's one for you, Michael. And I said, you know, I think I already look pretty interesting here in these four-year-old jeans. There's
1: a fine line between looking interesting and looking like a spectacle, right?
0: Yeah. And in fashion, honestly, sometimes that line is incredibly blurred.
1: Okay. Speaking of looks, I have, Please. I have two things we need to discuss. Okay. Two things. One, can we talk about the Billie Eilish transformation?
0: We can always talk about the Billie Eilish transformation.
1: Okay. For those who haven't seen, she was on the cover of British Vogue earlier this week. And all I can say is wowza.
0: It surprised me. And that's what good fashion editorial does, right? It shows someone that you think you're already familiar with in a completely different light. And that's what uh, Edward Enninful and his team over at British Vogue have done with Billie Eilish. First of all, why don't you explain the Billie Eilish look pre-Vogue? Uh, how, how did How do you make sense of it?
1: I would think it's basically like wearing clothes that are had no shape, no form, you know, very boxy and loose and old baggy. Uh and, you know, there you, you just saw the face and there was no form to it to anything else but obviously with this now you know she went with this blonde hair tied her hair and then came on with these extremely form fitting it was amazing so she posts the first image on sunday i think it was uh on instagram she set a record if there can be such a thing for the most the shortest time it took to get one million likes just blew up all over the gram
0: Wow. It's pretty, uh, what a great story she's had. I mean, she is mega famous on the internet and she's come of age as a musician. Also, At the same time, she's come of age as an icon of body positivity. She's only 19 years old, but she's come to represent so many things for so many young girls. And this is another phase of her transformation. Craig McDean shot these great looking shots. Uh, She's rocking like a complete pinup look and wearing what one could say sort of lingerie inspired fashion. And Michael, I'm here for it. Look, I'm ready to switch up my look too after this pandemic. Well,
1: I'm ready for more lingerie on the streets. Sure. Yeah.
0: I'm ready to see more lingerie on you, Michael. How are you switching up your looks? What's mm-hmm. Michael Haney's bit of flair going to be for the season? Tell us. Oh, God.
1: I, I don't have any. I, I hate summer because it's just like it's it's all about showing skin and I just don't look good like that. So a pale, pasty, white person. But I will say, if you haven't listened to the new Billy Eilish song, Your Power, that's another thing you should be doing because uh, it's a sort of track she dropped from the forthcoming album that's been my heavy rotation for the week as well
0: all right good times what is the second topic we need to discuss
1: okay the second topic do we want to talk about the 130 billion dollar split that happened this week between bill and melinda gates
0: this is the only After- thing i want to talk about what's clear to me michael at this early stage in the recording as the marriage was in trouble for a long time and i'm just going to Put this out here, I'm guessing he may have been a tough guy to live with. Geniuses often are.
1: Yeah, and you know, supposedly he had this strange arrangement where this sort of woman he'd known for a long time, they would spend a week together every summer.
0: He doesn't strike me as the CAD type. Like, I could have seen this in Bezos, like this made sense. But Bill Gates, he just seems so painfully shy and kind of dorky. And maybe that's just my confirmation by
1: So apparently... He spent long weekends at the beach alone with his ex-girlfriend every year in an arrangement that he had with Melinda, this woman, a woman, a venture capitalist named Anne Winblad, who he'd known for a long time. So, look, that doesn't mean anything strange happened, but it's, you know. Maybe it's his Camilla. I don't know.
0: But oh do you God want maybe 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 they were swingers, Michael. So many possibilities.
1: Okay, you want to hear my idea? Please. The first wives club of, of tech. Melinda Gates as Diane Keaton, Mackenzie Scott yes. as Bette Midler. Oh! and Lorene Powell Jobs by Goldie Hawn. I mean, I know they're technically not all three divorced. I know one lost her husband uh through to an untimely death, but isn't it kind of amazing that The three wives of the three richest men of the last 20 years in tech uh, have all moved on now.
0: It's a good time to be arm candy, okay? Gentlemen, start your engines because these are some highly eligible bachelorettes. Uh, But as far as we know, Melinda Gates is on the market, or she will be very soon. And this is a story we will follow closely, Michael. Who do you think would be a good get for her? Hmm. Who should she date? If you were Melinda Gates, you had more money than God, you're young, you're attractive, you're out and about, you've got a brain on you, you're one of the most prominent women in the U.S., who would you go for?
1: That's a good question. Well, you're a woman. Who would you match her with?
0: Easy, breezy, lemon squeezy, Brad Pitt. Single, (laughs) likes architecture, handsome as can be, same generation, okay? And uh, that's that. So, Melinda, no problem. We can try to set you up with his agent. Just give us a call.
1: (sighs) Okay. See, solving the world's problems.
0: <laughs> we who needs Raya, Michael? We're, exactly. We can we can make all this. We need we can make this magic happen, and we're free. We're not even going to charge you seven ninety nine a day. Okay. All right. Well, we've got a another bang up issue of AirMail this week. Our view from here this week looks at the politician we can't stop talking about. Yes, it is Donald Trump, and no, we are not going to stop just because he's out of office. And our writer Sean McCreech takes an intimate look at what his life is like, especially in the wake of Facebook's decision to deplatform him for another six months. Michael, what you, Michael, you edited this piece. Tell us a little bit about what Sean is thinking.
1: Well, Sean reminds us that you know it's sort of like Twilight Zone, uh, an episode of Twilight Zone happening down there, where you have a man whose great greatest desire in life is is relevancy but he grows more irrelevant each day every time he opens his mouth. And this is a guy who he can't get anyone to pay attention to him now. And as Sean kind of points out, he's sort of like a sort of a dilapidated porn star from the nineties who now, believe it or not, like if you pay him, he'll show up at your party. He's so desperate for attention. It, Sean kind of equates him to, you know what? OJ Simpson during the trial was the the hottest man in the, in the universe. Everyone wanted to follow that story. And then once the trial was over, no one cared. He reduced to kind of like calling calling into, into radio shows to sort of say his case. And here Trump is doing the same thing, trying to get attention. You know, he calls Mitch McConnell a dumb son of a bitch. And, you know, it makes, you know, it gets, it gets buried on Fox News. So he can't get any attention these days, mostly because, you know, he's been deplatformed. And, but, you know, as Sean says he's kind of like a Gloria Gaynor disco record at Comiskey Park in 1979. No one wants to hear it or him. He's like, it's just a sort of look at a guy coming unraveled down there. But we all knew that was going to happen.
0: No surprise there, Michael. The only thing I want to do right now in Palm Beach is go to Mar-a-Lago and watch Donald Trump hold court and get a sense of what that scene is still like. Like, who is going to pay their respects at this point?
1: Well, a lot of journalists are going down there because they know that he's he, he's always desperate to get the press's attention and talk to him. But and I'm, I'm sure, of course, of a lot of uh, ring kissers, if you want to call them that, and. You know, people like like Kevin McCarthy or someone who's in the politics trying to curry his favor. But it's a strange scene in the court of the Orange King.
0: We keep reading about all these New Yorkers that are moving to Miami, and I'm like, guys, you do know Donald Trump is down there, right? Like, although he's yeah, back,
1: he, he's coming back to New Jersey for the summer now.
0: Oh, I can't wait. Marvelous. Will you be playing golf out there, Michael? Will I be playing golf out there? Yeah, why not? Because I don't play golf. Mm. Sean, keep us posted. If you get invited to dinner at Mar please call me. I really want to I really do want to go.
1: You know what Donald Trump does need? What? He needs better representation, a better agent. Which leads us to our next story.
0: Ooh, Dominique Besnar.
1: Who is the man the man who created Call My Agent, the show everyone's loving, right?
0: Oh, I love it. Okay, well, in the issue this week, Adam Sage takes us behind the scenes of the Netflix show that everyone is talking about, Call My Agent, originally called 10% in French. Uh, it came out in 2015 in Paris, and it was based on a script written by a real-life French agent. This guy's name was Dominique Besnard, and he worked at an agency called Art Media, which you may recall, for those of you who watch the show, there is a rival agency in the show called Star Media. Very close. Um, anyway, and he based the character of Gabriel Sarda, who is the congenial, funny, handsome, charming agent on himself, naturally, and everyone else is kind of based on real life characters that he encountered as well. Now, uh worked with very famous actors, Isabella Gianni, Beatrice Dahl, Rupert Everett. And he has complaints about all of them, but he managed to turn those issues into comedic gold in this wonderful show. Have you seen it, Michael? No, dear, I haven't. Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. If you thought the Kaminsky method is good, you're going to go crazy on this. I haven't,
1: it's, you know, it's like, it's in the queue. It's in the queue. I just can't, there's, there's only so much time.
0: I know. I know. Fine. Listen, I mean, I definitely lost about, I'm not going to lie. I lost about a month, like, binge watching this every night but it's just an incredible incredible show uh anyway so adam sage gets deeper into who this guy was and all the grievances that he had and uh it's just a lot of fun especially for fans of french cinema who really want to know like the intricacies of natalie bay's contract for the 1997 film food of love You know, this is really uh, hard-hitting stuff, but it's great. Michael, when is the last time you went to Greece? Never. You've never been to Greece? No. Okay. God, I rely on you to be my go-to for all things Mediterranean and stylish.
1: Okay, I've never watched Call My Agent and I've never been to Greece. Do I still have a job?
0: God, I'm like shaming you on this episode today. All right. It's okay, Michael, because guess what? There's never been a better time to go to Greece. As our dear Alec Lebrano writes about in the issue this week, This is the hottest summer destination. And not only because they are allowing American tourists who have been vaccinated to come and travel without a quarantine period. There are a ton of new hotels opening up in the Greek Isles this summer that I have to say, Michael, look pretty appealing. So it's time to book.
1: I've already made note of it.
0: Okay, good. Go ahead. Which one struck your fancy?
1: The one that struck my fancy, and I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, is Kalesma, which is a small 25-room hotel situated two miles outside of Mykonos town. now Mykonos, of course, has the reputation for being a bit of a party town, party island, correct? But this one is a little more quiet. You get a little bit more of, maybe maybe you can imagine yourself being a little more of Jackie Onassis uh, in 1968-69 and less of Paris Hilton in 2013, right?
0: Yeah, Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, like that's kind of the meekness vibe, at least as I know it, but it seems like there's another side of this island and Alec Lebrano writes about it quite convincingly. In fact, he's going in a few weeks. So that's, I think, the greatest endorsement there is. Um, and there are a ton of others opening too. There's another great one called uh, Historia Santorini, that's on this incredible black sand beach of Perivolos. And uh, a nine room hotel called Aristide on Syros, which looks really stunning. So um, if you have any questions or queries about booking Greece, please do check out this article. Lots of great ideas.
1: Perfect. Okay, Ashley, if I don't go to Greece this summer, I'm still going to have a great beach read. Mm -hmm. And you know what mine's going to be?
0: Bridget Jones Diary.
1: No, it's going to be the new book by Michael Lewis, the brilliant mind behind the big short Moneyball and the Blind Side, who's back with a terrific book. It's called The Premonition, and it focuses on three individuals, three doctors who worked Behind the scenes and kind of conspired to work around Washington officialdom to fight the coronavirus in the early days uh, of it. And we've got a great interview this week by our book czar, Jim Kelly, with Michael and how he came to the book and how how he sort of creates these riveting nonfiction tales, right?
0: I love Michael Lewis. I love Jim Kelly. The two of them together is sheer magic. So this is a wonderful Q&A and gives you some insight into the process of genius and how fortunate we are to have scientists among us, Michael.
1: Yeah. And also I think, you know, it's a nice, it's, it's, a, it's a great interview by Jim because he sort of ranges across uh, different topics that you've always wanted about with Michael, how we got started for a guy who started off in finance and then transitioned over into writing bestsellers. And um, if you're a writer, an aspiring writer, or someone who wants to know about the craft of writing, very illuminating answers from Lewis, beginning with, he sort of says he always trusts his luck in you know, any way, like that things are going to work out with his story. He doesn't really start with, he doesn't really start with a main character. He starts with a topic. In, a, in other words, here's one, how does a poor baseball team consistently beat the rich ones, which became Moneyball. But it's funny if my, Jim asked him if there was ever an idea he had that didn't work out. And Lewis admits he wanted to do sort of uh, a book about the, the history of the stapler. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what Lewis says.
0: You and I have very different ideas about what constitutes a bee read.
1: Yeah, you know, years ago, I, I learned this lesson. I was on vacation in Italy, of all places, on the on the Italian Riviera. I was uh, driving th- across the country with uh, my friend Sam. If you've ever seen the graduate it's the same car that Dustin not drives and that drove from all the way through the Brenner Pass down through Italy around anyway we're sitting on the beach one day in Italy and I was reading a book and Sam looks over he's like what are you reading and I showed it to him he says you come to Italy and you sit on the beach with topless women and you read the Inferno by Dante
0: that is the most peak Michael Haney moment I could even imagine
1: I just was, I was like, what? He's like, what are you, what's wrong with you? Why are you like, he's like, are you that Catholic? I said, I don't know. I thought it would be appropriate to the, he's like, no, read something great anyway. So yes, I clearly, I need help with my beach read.
0: Let's take a break for a brief lesson in the history of Champagne. Michael, what can you tell me about Madame Clicquot?
1: Funny you should ask. She was one of the original innovators in the realm of Champagne. All the way back in 1805, she took the reins of Maison Clicot following the death of her husband. She was a risk taker and completely uncompromising when it came to maintaining the highest possible quality of her wines.
0: She was also known for perfecting new innovations and expanding Veuve Clicot's reach into all corners of the world. Today, her name is synonymous with excellence and she is remembered as the Grand Dame of Champagne.
1: And like Madame Clicquot, yo Kusama is a trailblazer in her field. She entered the art world at 28 and once said, I promised myself that I would conquer New York and make my name in the world with my passion for the arts and my creative energy.
0: To celebrate the house's new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, Kusama created a new design for its bottle and gift box that makes smart use of her polka dots to represent champagne bubbles.
1: And as for the wine itself?
0: It expresses Veuve Clicquot's love of Pinot Noir, which represents over 90% of the blend. As Madame Clicquot said, our black grapes give the finest white wines. It tastes as beautiful as it looks. La Grand Dame is a showcase of the house's excellence.
1: Madame Clicquot and Yo Kusama lived 150 years apart, but they still created an unforgettable collaboration. That alone is worthy of a celebration.
0: Well, Michael, we're very lucky here. We have not only an incredible piece in the issue, one of the greatest of all the great lives we've published, but we have the writer of this great lives here with us. So Mr. William Norwich has been an incredible look back at the life and legacy of Sean Driscoll. Welcome, Billy. Hi, everybody. How are you? We're wonderful. So first of all, Billy, for those who are not au courant on the New York City world of entertaining and high society, who was Sean Driscoll?
2: Sean Driscoll was the founder of New York's, certainly New York Societies and New York Philanthropy's most successful, desirable caterer. And that, that firm was called uh, Glorious Food. It's still called Glorious Food. It's still th- it will hopefully thrive after the pandemic and things get back to business. Well,
0: caterer feels are, like such a layman's term for what he really was, right? But he was the first to turn this into the sexy industry it is today.
2: Well, actually, it's interesting because um, in writing this, piece, which because I knew him well, and I helped him with uh, work on a memoir, which was not published and not completed. I found a book called Hot Box by Matt, and Lee and Ted Lee, the brothers who write about food. And uh, it's a history of catering. But what happened was, was that the secret of modern catering, I learned by reading the Lee's book, I did not know this, is the hot box it was the ability of a hot box so that a chef could actually not, you didn't have to cook the meal and take it somewhere. You could prepare the meal and then cook it out of a hot box, different temperatures and things. And Jean-Claude Nedelac, I hope I'm saying that correctly, uh, perfected the hot box, which meant that Glorious Food could suddenly provide meals for particularly charity institutions that didn't have to be in a venue where there was a kitchen. So for instance, at New York Public Library. There's probably not a kitchen that can support a, making a dinner for a 500 people for six blocks away. But they were able to do it in the in the back there with all these hot boxes, and it made glorious food very attractive.
1: This is one of the things I want to locate, Billy, which you do so well in your piece. Is taking us back to one of the kind of reasons we're running the piece. Is this is traditionally the first Monday in May is the Met costume gala institute ball, which Glorious Food and and his company sort of catered basically every one of them what i love is is the context you bring to them and they sort of became it was not fancy food it was that sort of intimate home cooked food like which the rich the wasps love which is meatloaf and and mashed potatoes right absolutely and it brought into your home and that was really kind of like the thing that he perfected in the early 70s right
2: absolutely michael it started in 1971 it was the height of the youth quake and it was not, you know, every, the, the Mika Erdogans and the, and the Chesie Rainers and Louise Grunwald, the Louise Grunwalds and the Annette de Laurentiis, they didn't want to, I mean, they all basically liked their mothers, but they didn't want to do their mother's style. Amanda Mortimer, was Amanda Burden uh, now, Babe Paley was her mother. She didn't want to do it, Babe's, Mrs. Paley's way. So they were looking for a different food, a different way of dressing, a different way of decorating, which was more bohemian and it also coincided with the time when new york was kind of broke so it was really it was more embarrassing to um you know i don't know what a gato chateau i mean you go to someone's house and there was this huge what is what's the quote in the piece louise Fernwald says
1: no foam no spew no pyramids no overly decorated food just good old meat loaf and mashed potatoes right which was you know it's that intimate thing and 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 uh and, and as i think you also point out it was the bunny melon aesthetic right you remind uh, and the sister parish kind of extolling the virtues of the uncomplicated, right?
2: That's right. This M. Billy Baldwin was the most popular decorator, and he also was all about simplify, simplify, simplify. I mean, it's a it's a social history this 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 catering business, glorious food.
0: Billy, another while we're on the subject of the waiters, there was a truly hysterical term that was coined uh, thanks to glorious foods Stop. You write in the piece, glorious foods stop was so good looking that one society doyen. If memory serves, it was Jerome Zipkin, coined the term staff infection to define what happens to the average socialite when she goes to a dinner catered by glorious food and is intoxicated by the waiters. Thank you, Sean Driscoll, for putting a term to this phenomenon.
2: It's all true. I mean,
1: that's something that's right out of a Tom Wolf novel.
0: Well, well, let's talk also about this other part of Sean's genius, which it wasn't even only about food and it wasn't about catering, it was about sort of EQ, right? Emotional intelligence. He always knew who was on the outs with who. He knew where to seat people for the most interesting conversation. How do you explain that part of of his talent? And because you know him personally, what made him so special as a human?
2: There was a deep sensitivity to other people. He was not, I don't, a narcissist. His events were not about him. They were about the guests. Even even ultimately, they were about, when there was a charity, it was about the cause. This would endear him to the human the humans that dealt with him.
1: Again, what I find so uh, captivating about your piece is, again, he didn't come from an extraordinary background, upper you know up in Westchester father was an alcoholic his mother was you know it was not it was not a wealthy family middle class family and yet he is again like one of these people who comes to New York City and has all this power and authority from these humble backgrounds and shapes the New York society at the highest level and yet uh, so many people know about him and it's so so many people
0: don't know about him that's why he's such a fascinating character.
2: Alright kids take care of yourselves. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, I don't even want to talk about my recommended because I'm desperate to get Helen Fielding on the show very soon, but it is the 20th anniversary of the publication of Bridget Jones's Diary. So if you have not read that recently, which I watched the movie once a year, okay, maybe three or four times a year, not nothing major, but I hadn't read the book in a long time and I did reread it last week. It holds up. Okay. Some people will disagree and say that her obsessive focus on her weight and the number of cigarettes she smokes is, you know, sign of an eating disorder, body dysmorphia, what have you. But I love it as a relic of 2001. And I think it is all written with such humor and fun. that I just love this book. And it's like truly delightful to read, download it on the Kindle. Clow through it in a couple of days and enjoy.
1: And as you know, I watched the movie recently for the first time. So now I will read the book for the first time on your recommendation.
0: Please do. Please enjoy. And hopefully we'll get Helen on the show very soon because I want to talk to her about 20 years of this uh, incredible book and its legacy.
1: Yeah, that's a good idea.
0: Don't you think? I just slacked Julia. We're on it. We're on it. This weekend, Alessandra and Emily, our two colleagues, came over for dinner and I made Bridget Jones's salmon from the Otto Lange cookbook because apparently in the third Bridget Jones diary, Patrick Dempsey makes a crack about this great salmon from Otto Lange, the restaurant in London. The recipe's in the book. So I just had to bring up full circle because what is there not to love about Brid- Bridget Jones? Like anything Bridget Jones in it, I'm there for. I have to say it was, it was a quite tasty recipe. Was
1: this like girls only?
0: No, we had the guys there too oh yes mm-hmm. do you have FOMO
1: I was just curious if it was like you know the three of you is like a girl's night with with it or if it was you know with the gentleman as well
0: we had to get the gentleman out there too Michael this was our, our first like post you know we do our outdoor lunches but we had to get everybody inside have a proper meal we were celebrating our vaccinated status All right. you and Brooke are invited I'll be there anytime you want to come we're waiting
1: I have one more recommended. I haven't seen it in person. I've only read about it and seen images of it. And we have it written up this week in airmail by Clementine Ford, who it's about a new exhibit uh, that's about to open at the Tate Modern in London. Y'all heard me talk a couple weeks ago about a beautiful painting exhibit by Alice Neal at the Metropolitan Museum in London. New York I feel like this is kind of an equally beautiful one from what I've seen online and what you can see of the images in Air Mail this week uh it's by uh it's a retrospective of paintings by Lynette yodam bachi they've got to be among the most beautiful I've seen in a long time they're all portraits of imagined people that she knows but um made me want to actually fly to London just to see this show so if it's if you're in London and you go to DM us, tell us how it is, because it looks as beautiful on online as it does in person. I'm, 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 I'm sure it's going to be great. So there we go. All
0: right, Michael, that's a good one. Well, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and motherly types out there and uh, to all the fathers and to all the humans and to uh, all of you. We wish you a wonderful day. Michael, will you please read us out?
1: I'd be delighted to. And yes, a special Mother's Day to Kathy and Barbara. And on that note,
0: Thank you to our partner for this episode, Veuve Clicquot La Grande Dame. To learn more or purchase La Grande Dame 2012, visit v e u v e c l i c q u o t V-E-U-V-E-C-L-I-C-Q-U-O-T.com.
1: Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Emily Davis is our CMO, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Speaking of music, our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on Airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly or at Ashley Claire Baker, or at Michael underscore Haney. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.